Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Wei Chun, really excited to have you on the show. We've been catching up about life and all these things and all things Singapore for a while. For those who don't know you yet, could you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Go Wei Chun. I'm one of the two founders of a Singapore-based finance web comic and blog called The Woke Salaryman. With The Woke Salaryman, what we try to do is we try to make the complex and often inaccessible or technically difficult topic of personal finance more accessible and also more fun to read by doing it primarily in comic form but also through illustrations and also like nowadays content online like Instagram stories and things like that. We've been doing that for about three years now. We started it as a side hustle and I think 10 months into it, we managed to monetize it. Then we shortly after that quit our jobs and now we're doing it full-time with a very small company. That's what I do. So how did you first start that artistic journey? Were you an artist as a child or was it something that came to you later? I think all kids draw. I forgot who said it. I think it might be Picasso. Maybe I attribute wrongly, but the quote is something like, all children can draw. You forget how to draw when you become an adult, which is a bit sad. Lah. You go and look at Picasso's art. He did some very like realistic stuff when he was becoming an adult because he sort of mastered the realistic form. He went back to drawing like a kid. That's why his stuff looks like the way it does. Lah. I think people who become artists a lot of time, you just didn't stop. I've been drawing for fun anyway for a long time. But then but this came when I was 14 years old. I watched this movie called Princess Momonoke. It's by Studio Ghibli or Ghibli. I also don't know how to say that one. Directed by this man called Hayao Miyazaki and it's incredible. Lah. So when I was 14, I saw that and I'm like, wow, this kind of thing can exist. I want to do this for my life now. So that's when I decided like, wow, this is what I want to do. And I think that's why you started your career obviously on the media side, etc. And yet you also decided to make that additional step also of becoming an entrepreneur, of being a co-founder, to build something new of your own. So how did that start for you? Well, that one is like much longer. So when I was in uni studying university, I was still, I think, quite naive. I always tell my students when I say this word, I say, please, uh, I'm saying naive not because you are inherently naive. You just haven't seen enough of the world yet. And that's normal as a student. It's like a coral reef of safety for you to be as... Uh, idealistic as you want then when you go out to the market then your ideal your ideals will be tested and my ideals were tested in a very rough way because I I told myself a few things that were in hindsight very too idealistic I said number one if I can get a job at Ghibli Studio I don't care what it is if I have to sweep the floor I also do it I'll do it for free because it's just, just how much I want that job so completely forgetting about like how I might add value because I was okay with being a Janitor. Not saying that janitor no value, lah, but obviously you go studio Ghibli, you want to be an artist. Number two, I told myself something along the lines of, well, if I can do anything animation related, I get 3K salary enough already. That's the cap I need if I can get a career in animation. Which later on, as I learned about money and how much it costs to have a house and things, then like, okay, 3K not enough. Huh? The last thing that I told myself was, 
if I graduate and I don't become an animator, I might as well kill myself. And I didn't say this in a depressing way. It's just an identity thing. Like I locked in animator as my identity so solidly. There was no room for anything else because that was how strongly I believed in it. And yet when I came out to work, I realized that actually 9 to 5 is not very fun sometimes. It's not that 9 to 5 is too long. It's that it doesn't give you a lot of room for options. So like younger folks listening to this who got jobs after COVID might not realize that actually before that, like you just go to office every day. Man, and it can be quite difficult. It's not that I don't want to do that. I just don't want to have to do that when I don't feel like it. That's how entrepreneurship always came around like eventually to my head. Wow, if only I can have my own thing. Then that also slowly became my dream. And I realized that it's very hard to fulfill that dream in animation, unfortunately. You said something that's quite true, which is I think all of us are very passionate when we were young. We all have that like very big passion when we were young. And then after that, we actually have to change and tweak it. Sometimes it feels like giving up. I'm selling out. Yeah, I'm selling out. That's what I felt like. How should people think about it from your perspective? Like, did you say you were selling out? Or did you feel like you let go of the old to step into something new? How does that work for you? I think some of it is ego. Some of it is like you are afraid of letting down your community, which in a way, I, I've never ever got a job in animation. I have master's degree in animation. I never did a full-time job with it. I did some freelance stuff before, but never full-time. And I was just afraid of my peers judging me, actually, in the back of my head. I'm like thinking, wow, oh, why do they say, wow, you see Wei Chun, like, he sold out, he's doing marketing now, he's doing like this kind of other stuff that's not animation. How can he give up? This was what... And I kept thinking like there's some kind of unspoken pact that all Singaporean animators have or Singapore animators have. Like we must stick through it and build the industry and have this critical mass of... I felt so much guilt, put all this pressure on myself. And then like, I go and talk to my friends. Actually, they don't care. And they won't judge you. Like if they're your friends, they won't judge you. And people who judge you for that kind of thing, they probably have some kind of inner insecurity that they're dealing with as well. Because I think about it from the POV of like me and my fellow graduates from my batch. Not everybody is doing animation. And I'm not going to go like, hey, you see like person A, like, how can he sell out and not do that? Like, I don't judge them. So if they judge me, then so I spent all this time wasting time. I think I sold out. But you know, people understand when they graduate, their life is hard. If anyone's going to judge me, then you pay me to be an animator and live my passion. No. If you don't want to do that, then, then shut up. Uh. But nobody thought that anyway. It's so stupid, right? So I, I, I spent like three years guilting myself over not being animation. Having sold out and chased money for a while was what allowed me to have enough savings to then start work salaryman without any, not without any fears, but with less fears because I have like six months of salary to write on in case it would take a while for us to monetize it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's actually kind of like what let you kind of like build up the reserves and also use that to build the work salaryman. For you personally, it feels like also as a personal issue because you're talking about your debt. How does that work together from your perspective? Like what attracted you to join or build? Like what about it was exciting to you personally? Yeah, the genesis of it was not so pitchy and proper actually. Like, Because my co-founder and I have been friends since Bali. We hang out socially anyway. and We're always talking about this stuff. And what we bonded a lot on coming up, the formation of the work salary men together was always the idea of quitting our jobs because I think a big reason was that he wanted to earn more money. For me also, because of my dad, because I feel that pressure from behind, that shackles in my feet that it's not comfortable to walk with and I can't run with. So the money was good, but for me, it was really about freedom and stuff. So when we made it together, it was not like we were going to get funding, we were going to pitch it and stuff. It's more like a side hustle. We wanted to use the work salary man as a showcase of our ability to turn boring things into interesting content. 
then what we were going to do is that we were going to use that as a portfolio to sell workshops. I remember being, being very enamored when one of my friends was doing workshops. I'm like, huh? You prepare one deck of slides and then you just do like two, three hours and you earn like thousands of money. Quite uhua, you know? So that's what I wanted to do. But even when it comes to business, like I'm, it really turns out and works out the way you plan. It will work out, but in a different way. So when we started, then eh, got sponsored content coming, then turned out that sponsored content route was something that we could do. Then that's what we've been doing. We are selling like workshops sometimes now, but it's not the main, nowhere near the amount of money that we make with sponsored content. What was it like putting the characters together for the first time? I actually went to see some of your older work. You can go back in time. <laughs> oh no. I couldn't, I, wasn't tell, I couldn't tell which one was the first, first one, but I, I could see the evolution. It is like going backwards. I, I know which one is the worst, worst one. Yeah, yeah. I look at it sometimes. Yeah. Are you saying the first one is the worst one? I mean, isn't that the most inspired? Yeah. I think so. Eh. Like, I think so. I think so. But I mean, it's the one that sparked everything. So of course it's special, but my inner critic is extremely powerful one. Right? A very strong one. So I can judge my work very well and objectively. And the first one was not good. Can you share a little bit more about what was the creative vision or what was the principles that you had when you put together that first characters into place? What was that things that you want to communicate? Because I can see the design language, you want to call it, right? the motive still staying. But I'm just kind of curious, what was that, I don't know, brainstorming? Or you must have tried different styles, different iterations. Because my actual art style that I naturally draw in, and I have a side project also of my own that I'm trying to draw this horror comic. And the style is more elaborate. La. It's a good question because like it forces me also to think about it now. Because sometimes, actually it was not so consciously thought of when I assembled the first comic. It just kind of fell into place based on what Rimming wrote. And I went for a style that was very efficient. That's the way to say it, I think. I was going to say like some a word that's a bit more rabat, like it's lazy. It's not like it's efficiency because I learned this about being an artist and publishing stuff on social media. Social media is fast. Very, very fast. So sometimes if you have to choose between mastery or consistency of publication, right? You have to choose consistency of publication. So you have to have a conscious decision to take the thing that you love and try to design it in a way that you can make it fast enough. That's why our stuff don't have color on. Color is another, will double the time. Maybe I'm not good at color also, but it doubles the time that it'll take to make something. So that was the biggest factor. And it was not easy to do as an artist that had passion because it's like, I should also express my artistic identity and all this. But you also see stuff, especially nowadays on TikTok and Instagram, right? You see like teenagers in their bedrooms with just one guitar and very raw vocals doing absolutely like emotionally eliciting things with such a simple thing with flaws even. So it's great that social media has made, because publication is so easy nowadays. There's no barrier to that. Typically, I think in the past, why a lot of things sound very polished, was that they had to go through the barriers of publication because it's so difficult. You need a company to back you. You need a record label. You need a TV station to say, okay, we'll produce your thing and broadcast for you. So because of those barriers of publication, it became very necessary to show a certain level of polish. And now we break that down and we find that lack of polish can also be something great. We see that, I think, with uh, social media videos also like, like if you look at like TikTok videos and why they work or YouTube videos and why they work, if you over-polish it, sometimes it can kill the authenticity of the piece and make it actually counterintuitive to what you want. 
which I think a lot of brands actually struggle with. They try to overproduce a video by throwing money at it. But you can't solve everything that way anymore because people won't believe it. They can see, hey, this one, uh, the video's so polished, trying to sell me something, right? Then instantly I'm not in already. So that's kind of how we approach our art also. And it has gotten better and more elaborate because I have found more resources to be able to do that. Like we hire people, then ah, now we can add gray shading. Or like, my process is cleaner now. Then I got space to add in additional quality to the product, which is shading. And then shading will give the drawings more form. But whether they tell the story better, I actually don't know. Sometimes they do. But I've been surprised that because we can see every share that we get on Facebook. Like, if we put an album of pictures, which is a comic strip, we can see individual engagements for each piece. And I'm always wrong, like, which panel will be shared the most. I always play this little game with myself. Like, I try to guess, like, because I also need to learn about what people like. I'll try to guess like, which one is the one that people will share. I remember this one piece about, it was a comic about why I'm shamelessly downgrading that my co-founder wrote. Very nice piece. Then the drawing that went the most viral was the simplest thing I had drawn that it was in the back that I didn't even care about. It was somebody holding a ball with the word enough on the ball. That's it. I didn't draw some elaborate scene or you know so oftentimes the creator what you want is not the same as what the audience wants and you have to understand that and not let your ego be too hurt by that <laughs> that's kind of a roundabout story of how we designed the, the stuff amazing I love that story about it's the simplest thing that you didn't expect and I also really appreciated you saying about how social media has changed what is, we can say, popular, but also what is easily received. Yeah, it can overproduce so easily nowadays. Yeah. So for you personally, have you noticed any trends? You said, you know, other panels, like, what other trends do you see that surprises to you? When it comes to trends, it's hard for me to say because our strategy is very specific and we have failed before at a lot of things. Like, so it's, it's not just trends, it's also trends where, like trends on LinkedIn, different from trends on Facebook, uh, different from trends on Instagram. And sometimes when you cross post, you, you just kind of get a sense that, ah, oh, this one is an Instagram piece. Ah, oh, this one will do on Facebook, but I'm not so well on Instagram and things like that. We try to rely less on trends, even though we do look at them also. If your content strategy is very centered around trends, I think what happens is that you are chasing the next thing that comes. And trends also is sometimes detected by algorithm because so YouTube will say, I want to push shots, you know. Then shots get pushed more and then it means that your content will be pushed towards shots because you are following that thing. And I think you can sort of adjust like it's a slider of how much do I want to follow. And we try to be timeless, but that's difficult as well. That's why we have our website actually. No, I think very few people go or less people go on the website like, for sure because most traffic is directed through social media. Those are the main stations in which then you take the subtrain or the LRT to another subline, which is your website. So the website is actually just a place for us to have our content in case some of these like social media websites decide to, to play weird pattern. And they play weird pattern before. Facebook playing weird pattern with us now. Like Facebook is just going in a direction that I feel is counter to the kind of content that we make. And I understand that from a business that that's what they want to do. It's fine, but we need to adapt and that's why we need to diversify. That's why we're on LinkedIn and I saw it as a flag planting exercise. But now that we've been on LinkedIn, I also discovered that there are very nice things about the LinkedIn algorithm. Like for example, it's slow. Things are discoverable like for much longer on LinkedIn because the feed will push things that are like two, three weeks old. Which I used to think like, why so slow? But actually there's something nice about it. It's nice to see like comments and engagement still tinkling in like weeks after you posted something where Facebook is like always the newest thing. 
maybe I can say in terms of storytelling that like some of the classic techniques that we use. I think we mainly do two kinds of stories and sometimes we push the boundaries. So the first kind is your TED Talk. It's like a presentation, straightforward presentation. Here's what bonds are and how you can use them. That's a very straightforward one. Second kind is more like like narrative, but narrative got some kind, got like personal story kind, like oh, how a 28-year-old got leukemia and had to deal with her bills. Let's say bonds, right? If you want to talk about bonds in a different way, we can do it in a story way also. A story way would be more like, and this is the easiest way to do it, but it's a bit like hokey and hacky to say this now, but like, it's like two people having a conversation. So have you heard of bonds? Like, what bond? The only bond is James Bond that I know of. Then they have a convo, but you're saying sort of the same points. Or it could be something like, it's a story where like, there's one that I'm very excited to release. We wrote a story about a couple that broke up on Valentine's Day because they argue about money. So that doesn't teach much technical things, but it hopefully tucks some heartstrings. There's some brain wrapped up in all the hearts. That's how I like to put it. You tell this kind of story, it's like it's more feeling and less thinking. But we also try to put some thinking inside. And the thinking actually for that piece would be at some point when you are meeting somebody, have a talk about life, money, and all these unpleasant things. Because if you don't talk about it earlier, when it comes up later, it will be extremely awful. Because you go in a deep relationship without talking about these things because you're scared to talk about it. Then come to find out when you're on the precipice of taking the next step that all your things long-term are misalignment. So I always like to say the formula for that kind of story is heart, brain, heart. Like we wrap the brain around two layers of heart at the beginning and the end. Because you hook them in the beginning with some semblance of heart. Say your lesson in the middle. Then end it with heart again so that they can take it away. So maybe these are some story templates that we use like no, amazing to hear about your templates like TED Talk versus story time versus discussion. And I think all of it is a form of translation because I think obviously it's easy to do art for entertainment in that sense or art for inspiration, but you're doing very technical or financial terms and you're translating that for the general mass audience, right? Have there been challenges in translating that language or and content? Like how does that happen? I know, Yes. There's so many things to say about this because there's, first off, there's nuance. Then there's also neutrality. Because we put stuff out there that is seen by the public, our client is actually not the sponsors. The sponsors are only here because we are able to capture the attention of our real clients, which is the readers. It's a difficult thing to balance because you also don't want to piss off anybody. There's cancel culture looming as a threat. What tends to go viral and virality is not a must for content publishers, but it's extremely helpful. But what tends to go viral is definite stance when you can clearly say, this is bad or this is good. But what is often closer to the truth and what is often much more helpful is nuanced take where you can see the reason in both POV and you don't necessarily need to say the end of it. This is good or this is bad. There's a quote that says something, I don't know who said it, but like, intelligence is the ability to hold opposing points of view. That is at the core of how we try to think about it. Like every time, and we do this for fun in the office anyway, when Rumi and I talk, uh, my co-founder Rumi and I talk, we will try to take the opposite position of something for the fun of it. Immediately try to take the opposite point of view. And he does the same as well. And that's how we, we sharpen this point. Then you have things like neutrality, you know, politics. What stand do you take? That is difficult also. What we do to maintain neutrality is that sometimes we say a piece on the left. We say, here's why this, 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 is this. But we have done a piece also before that about agency. Something like how much in life is actually up to you, which is actually about agency. 
these two things you put together, it seems like they contradict, but they don't. It's, I sleep very well at night. I agree with both pieces, even though they seem to go in the opposite directions. So your question also about translating that middle ground is inherently difficult for social media because we are not in a lecture setting. We are not in a postgraduate setting where we have time to be nuanced and we are constantly running up against the idea that our comics are too long. People tell us that all the time. If you go and see our Instagram, our stuff actually don't work natively very well on Instagram because we have so many panels and Instagram album is max 10 that we have to put four comic panels in one panel to fit everything in. That's how long-winded we are and we've chosen to be that way. We've tried TikTok before. We just suck at it because we are naturally very long-winded. Because we think that's necessary to communicate that nuance. And that is why it's needed to carry somebody from the basic first level of knowledge of, of awareness or something through the difficult middle muddy part. You have to understand that there's nuance. But if it's necessarily complicated, like it can't work without it being complicated, then what? How, the communication part is so difficult. How are we going to make this necessarily complicated thing easy enough, but not too easy when they take the wrong thing away? And that's something we haven't solved. And it's a great question because we ask ourselves that every single week. We're looking at it like, oh, it's so complex. But if we don't explain this in the entirety, people get the wrong idea. We also don't want to do that. We want to be, oh, this sounds so cocky to say this, but that's really the, the approach. We want to be a good friend. And a good friend will just tell you things you want to hear. A good friend might tell you, dude, you got to stop doing that. It's hurting you. And that's kind of how we try to strike that balance. Uh. Yeah, so it's very difficult. <laughs> there is a very nuanced and neutral answer, but also a very deep one. Because like you said, I think the truth is, finance is hard. I mean, <laughs> life, there's death, there's kids, there's marriage, there's divorce. There's so many different aspects about life. And unfortunately, life is not free or fair. A big part about personal finance is, I want more. And the other part is, it's not unlimited a finite amount of time on earth. You have a finite amount of money, finite amount of health. I don't know, it feels like those are the two, I don't know what, parts of the human soul. You know? The second part getting longer though. And I think that's why people are getting depressed. But I think what we learned through that is that there's no right answer also. Honestly, also sometimes our content makes me feel like worried that I'm not doing enough because as the nature of what we do, we also tend to be surrounded by our peers in the industry who are also experts in personal finance. So they know so... Like yourself. I mean, ultimately, are all humans also. So the same fears, insecurities, whatever is still there. I feel myself being tucked. I don't do it on purpose, but I think I also do talk about like, how much actually do you need? It might never be enough. And like, why are you actually earning so much money and building so much money for? Because when you first start earning money, it feels good. Your problems are alleviated. You get the idea that more money equals more happiness. But at some point, I think it stops. I don't know what that point is. An American study said like something like 70 US dollars a year. I don't know true or not. But I also think everybody maybe got a different point. And like for me, I'm thinking, well, if I can get financial independence, i.e. like 1.2 million dollars invested in various things, I'm done really. But actually, uh, I might want a bit more. So I also don't know how to settle this thing. It seems like every time I get close to being okay, a new perspective will come. But I think as long as I'm not doing it in an unsustainable way, it's okay. Lah. Like, spend my old age is working on my craft, which is making comics. 
if I can have that life, I think I'm, I'm okay with it. I love what you're sharing, which is that I think so many people look at the founders and the team being they know everything and the 100% work. I think the work ceremony is an ideal that we aspire to. So like people say like, welcome to the work ceremony. And, and I'll, if you're not too rude, I will say I'm not the work ceremony. Like, it's the brand. Like, we are people working for this thing. But I just want to ask you, are you retired or what? <laughs> I'm not retired. Do you need to worry about money now? Long story short is yes. And I think one of the big transitions points for myself personally, what I realize is that I think when you're working for yourself, um, I think there's a certain amount of financial goals that you know that are there. But I think as a kid or teenager, you don't never really think about your own kids. And now that I have two young daughters, both under the age of two, obviously they start thinking about school and scenarios and what if they get sick and so on and so forth. So... But are they that expensive? I mean, I, I, I'm going to sound them naive. Lah, but I also would like to hear from somebody like you who... Because I hear angel investor, I'm like, wow, I must be them rich. Lah. Because you are investing with your own money in other people's things. You must be them rich already. Lah. So, still need to worry about this kind of thing. Because I feel like... Uh, something my, my friend said about kids that I always thought very intriguing was that he said, uh, kids in Singapore cost as much as you want it to cost. There's that baseline necessity thing, but then... After that, it's just how much you want to add on. So how are you projecting that situation? And like, does that even like dent your financial situation much? For somebody, I would think it's doing quite okay. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, frankly, I 100% agree that I think raising children as expensive as you want it to be. And I think there's also a lot of recent science that shows that actually, as a parent, you can't really change too much about your life. The biggest thing you can do to change your child's life is choose your partner because really? their genes and their environment, all of that is really determined by your partner. But And then I think the science shows like there's only like three things that a parent can really change. They can change your professed religion, but not your spiritual institution participation rate. They can change your professed political identification, but you can't really change their actual beliefs. And the third thing they can change is how much they love you. But you can influence it strongly, right, actually? It's more less about the fact that it's not less nurture. It's more like at the end of the day, parents actually do a lot less nurture than they think they do. <laughs> so what I mean by that is that the kid is growing up, they hang out with their family, their environment, uh, their school, their friends, the media, what they're watching on TV. They become teenagers, then they become rebellious, they want to do their own thing. So I think direct parenting doesn't really have those influences, but I think what parents can really construct is the environment that their kids are in. So for example, if you if your children grow up in a good school or with good teachers, those are things that you can really control to some extent. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. I thought it was a really interesting... I read that book uh, before having kids and I was like, that was quite calming. It's all up to you from like, I just try my best and I surround her with what? The best I can do. Exactly. I think I moved away more from a construction approach <laughs> to, to parenting to more of a gardening approach. And you can overdo it also. Like if you over, overwater your plants, they're going to die. Exactly. I also killed my first plant that way. I remember I was very happy to buy my first ever plant. I... Actual plant, right? Not a kid, right? <laughs> Not a kid. No, no, not my first kid. <laughs> I think gardening approach to children is how I look at it. So one thing, you know, obviously I'd love to ask for you is, could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave? I think a lot, but like the stories would be too difficult to tell. But I think the easiest one to say, the point would be when I quit my job to start this company. And it's not a big deal, honestly. Like if you just look at the factors I had to play with, the amount of money that I saved up, it's not say a very perilous journey. But for me, it's a huge deal because the amount of fear that I felt 
was very immense. Like I've always wanted to do this entrepreneurship thing. And then here it is, this thing that we've built, we've monetized, that has steady income coming in. And still, I didn't dare to take the leap. And I actually did this in April 2020. That's when I quit my job. And April 2020 was when the COVID situation was just starting to hit. I remember very clearly my boss, Abel, he told me, like, hey, Richard, are you sure you're not quit? Because like, if you quit, I have to replace you. And then I don't know if I can get you your job back. I would love to keep you. So can you be very careful about this decision because COVID is coming? So it was really difficult. But what swung it for me and allowed me, and like you were saying about gardening, was my parents that they didn't tell me what to do. I always ask them like, should I quit? Should I quit? Because they know about this stuff, I think. And they always tell me, don't rush it, don't rush it, don't rush it. But when I presented my factors to them, I got this thing that I'm starting. I think they still don't fully understand what I do. So they look at the financial factors and then the job and stuff. Then they say, actually, you can consider. Why not? What, what do you have to lose? And when they say that, I'm like, ah, okay. I related it to your gardening thing because it's like they didn't tell me what to do. Structure is where it's at. Yeah, you tell me roughly how to approach it. Don't do it for me. Don't do it with me. Don't pull my hand through it unless I need your help that way. So the fear that I felt in approaching that decision was almost cripplingly like difficult. I had sleepless nights thinking, I'm like thinking, wow, my future, what if I miss this chance, never get it again? Could be a once in a lifetime thing. Why not just try it? I thought it was the bravest thing I did. It's not the bravest thing anyone has ever done. But the amount of fear that was in my head, wow, I was so wrecked with paralysis for a while. And then my co-founder was like, ah, just do it. In fact, he was actually not helpful at all because of how chill he was with it, which is not a knock on him, but it's just how neurotic I naturally am. I overthink things all the time. So I was assaulted by just all these possibilities of things that could go wrong. It's still, I think, a miracle that I even managed to take the leap. I don't know how I did it. On reflection now, is there any nuance now, I guess, to that fear that you now have the benefit of hindsight to look on and see why there was fear? Yeah, there is some. The fear, I think, comes from, I think, ego also. Eh? Because I was afraid of starting this thing and being associated with not having this thing work out. But I think I also subconsciously judge people who are failed entrepreneurs because I wanted to be one and I didn't want to ever fail at being one. So I also take it out on people that I see who tried it and failed. And that is awful that I did that. And now I have the utmost respect for people who failed because only through going, only by going through all the stories of people who are brave enough to share their journeys of how they failed, did I learn what it took to make a business work and what it can do to derail a business. And that fear is real. Fear keeps you alive. It stops you from being just completely reckless. So you need it. But sometimes you can get it to the point of paralysis and that's not good either. You can freeze when something dangerous is coming for you. And that works sometimes. You also have to rationally be able to overcome and go, what does this situation require? Is it fear? And take the feeling you get from here and go, okay, actually, I've accounted for this stuff. Let's go ahead anyway. And, and is that action in the presence of fear, then that is courage or bravery. So that's why I try to tell my students who feel fear about doing certain things. Let your brain help you. Fear is from the depths of your heart. It's a very intuitive thing. You feel it first before you even realize what it is. That's why you go to university. That's why you sharpen your mind, your ideas. 
the coping mechanism that I've come up with in order to also as a lecturer now give some sort of structure for my students to think about things like this kind of fear. Wow, amazing. You know, I'd love to recap. I think there are three big themes that I got from this discussion. Uh, the first, of course, is thank you for sharing about what was it like to have your creative spark and your childhood passion and how that plus also your desire to strike out your own path led you to found the Work Salary Man. And I think a lot of the principles that you have that you're not the Work Salary Man, but it's an ideal that you're working towards. I think there's such a beautiful humanity to it. I think second, of course, is I really appreciate you going to the tradecraft of building efficient art because of algorithms and the social media trends that are there today. But also, I think a lot of the translation work that's needed to take finance as a topic into something that's consumable and understandable in terms of nuance versus neutrality. And I think you could set it in the context of the broader culture as well. And lastly, I really appreciate that you talk about how the fear of being a founder how you went about resolving it, but also I think in recognizing, I think with the benefit of time and age, I guess, that we all of us have now. And I love, I think, your guidance on how to kind of like harness your brain and your heart to kind of like push forward. So thank you so much. No, thanks for sharing also all your parenting. The stuff about the garden, I think that's fantastic. That's a great way to look at it. All right, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>